The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. You may remember that last week, Pastor York, as he went through uh, chapter 8 of Daniel, talked about Daniel having this, this weight or sickness of sin as he saw this, this vision that Gabriel had brought to him in which political oppression of one nation rising against another gave, gave a grand picture of evil and sin opposing each other. And, and Daniel responded by lying on his bed sick at this vision of sin. Well, tonight um, in chapter 9 we're going to continue a similar theme of, of sin Instead of looking at a grand picture of, of future nations and sin working out on, on, on the, the grand scale of history, in that sense, we'll be looking tonight much more at the, the sins of Israel and, and the sins of Daniel's heart as he grieves a broken covenant relationship with his God. We're in chapter 9, and if you would join me in reading verses 1 through 19 of Daniel chapter 9. Let's read. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of this land. But to you, O Lord, belong righteousness, while to us open shame as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And a curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. 
Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Let's pray. Father, in this passage, we see such great truths about you awesome God who is righteous and faithful and we see true words about ourselves we who have sinned and so Lord I pray that as we consider this text would you humble us before you and would you magnify yourself before us that you might be glorified in our lives we pray this in your name amen as we look here at chapter 9 you may recall when we've been looking at the second half of Daniel portion of scripture full of visions and dreams that Daniel has started each chapter with a time marker, a historical context. So in chapters 7 and 8, he's mentioned that these visions came in the first and then the third year of Belshazzar, the king over Babylon. And here uh, is no exception. We're told that uh, this vision or this prayer happens in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. Perhaps unlike the previous chapters, though, the historical context for this prayer is very important. Although you may recall from chapter 6 that the exact identity of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, is somewhat of a puzzle for interpreters. We do know um, that whether he is, is another name, Darius is another name for Cyrus the Persian, or, or whether he is a person ruling in, under Cyrus's guidance, we know that, that he ruled directly after Belshazzar was defeated, and, and that was uh, the event, that uh, the handwriting was on the wall. And you may remember from chapter 5, Daniel interpreting the handwriting on the wall and Babylon being, being conquered. It's important uh, because we know the date when that happened, and, and the date was 539 B.C. And so you can picture in a very precise historical context, Daniel in 539 B.C. in the city of Babylon reading the word of the Lord. He's reading what the Lord had spoken through the prophets to his people. And as he's reading in the words of the prophets, he comes across Jeremiah's prophecy. He says he came across in the book the number of years that the Lord had promised for the restoration of Israel, namely 70 years. Now, if we think about historical context and numbers, we can again very quickly get into some uh, scholarly debates about exact uh, reference of these 70 years. 
It's possible that the 70 years started in 605 B.C. when the first exiles were taken from Babylon. And the 70 years then were fulfilled in 536 B.C. when the first exiles returned to Jerusalem. I think the majority of uh, interpreters lean towards uh, the interpretation that the 70 years actually started in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple and all of Jerusalem was destroyed, and then are ended in 516 B.C. when the temple is then again restored. There's a number of possibilities here. But the importance that, that I want you to see here is, is not dependent upon either of those uh, interpretations. The importance is that Daniel in 539 B.C. is reading the word of the Lord and he realizes that much time has passed and that the time of these 70 years to be fulfilled is approaching. And whether that was fulfilled two years after his prayer or whether that was fulfilled 22 years after his prayer, in the context of 70 years, the word of the Lord and the promise that God had made, the fulfillment of that promise was coming. The time for the word of the Lord to be fulfilled was approaching. And Daniel, as he sits in his room in 539 B.C. in Babylon, realizes that the word of the Lord will be fulfilled shortly. And so if we look at the context of of Daniel's prayer here, we see that that Daniel's lengthy prayer of confession is is driven by his realization that, that God and his promises are about to be fulfilled. In other words, we could say that Daniel is not praying here because he's worried that God might not fulfill his promise. Daniel's praying here because he is confident that God will fulfill his promises to Israel. And in, and in Daniel's confidence that God will be faithful to his word, he realizes that the time is approaching for Israel to be restored and for these promises to be fulfilled. It is God's promise, God's faithfulness, and God's sovereign rule over his people and all nations that ground Daniel's prayer of confession here in chapter 9. It might seem a bit unusual if you think about it. After all, if God is going to be faithful and we're absolutely confident that God is going to fulfill his promises, why does Daniel need to pray about that? It's a question that many of us have probably thought about and maybe even wrestled over at some point in the context of prayer. If God is sovereign, why do we pray? It's funny, as I was thinking about this question, I was reminded about a conversation I had with my son the other day. We were in the kitchen, and, and uh, I said, uh, Drew, would, would you like some milk? And he didn't respond for a minute, and then a minute later he said, Daddy. I said, yes, Drew. Can I please have some milk? And I was laughing to myself because I'm thinking, you know, son, I, I just offered you some milk. You don't have to you know, plead and beg for what I just offered you. And it, it might kind of seem that that's what Daniel's doing here. It might kind of seem like he's praying for and pleading for what God's already promised isn't that uh, a bit redundant? But on the contrary, Daniel shows us that we ought to spend time praying for what God has promised precisely because we believe that he is faithful to his words. One commentator put it this way. He said, to the question, if God is a sovereign God, why should we pray? Daniel would have responded, it is because God is a sovereign God that I pray. It was because he was confident that his sovereign God would do exactly what he had promised to do, that he poured out his heart to him in fervent prayer. Think about this for a minute. Why, what, what benefit is there to praying what God has promised, for praying for God's promises? Well, 
if you think about it, when we pray for what God has promised to do, we are calling attention to the character and the greatness of God. By praying with faith for God's promises, we're meditating on his faithfulness. We're meditating on his faithfulness to do exactly what he's promised to do. We're meditating on and and reiterating the sovereignty of God and his ability to bring about what he has promised. We're, We're praying for and meditating on the goodness and the love of God in making these promises to his people. And we could go on and on. But the point is that in praying for what God has promised, we are giving God the glory and, and bringing before our minds the, the sovereignty, the greatness, the faithfulness, the love of God. And if we're bringing before our minds the, the character of our God, what better way could there be to draw a picture of God's greatness and glory that enables our faith and our weak trust in him than to pray for what he has promised. Or think about it in another way. When we pray for what God has promised, we are also comforting our hearts. Daniel's prayer is driven by God's promise to restore Israel to to Jerusalem. But think of other promises that God has made to us that we can pray with equal fervency. God has promised to us that he will complete the good work he began in us at the day of Christ. And so with joy and with confidence, we can pray for God's sanctification, knowing that he will be at work in us because he's promised. And he will be faithful to that promise as we come before him. God has promised that he will draw all his sheep to himself and that his kingdom will advance in all peoples and all kingdoms and nations. And so we can pray with joy and with confidence for the work of our missionaries and those sharing the gospel because God will be faithful to that promise. God has promised to be our shepherd, to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. So we can pray with confidence that God will walk with us through trials and sufferings, knowing that he will be with us. God has promised to give us a peace that passes all understanding and that we can cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. And so we can and should pray for God's peace as we cast our cares and our burdens on him, knowing that he will be faithful to his promises. And we could go on and on listing the promises God has made for us, but When we pray what God has promised, resting with faith on his faithfulness, our hearts are comforted, and we are brought face to face with the glory and the character of God. Sinclair Ferguson summarized it this way. He said, the secret of prayer is that we should ask in accordance with God's will. The prayer of faith asks in unwavering trust for what God has already promised to do. Sinclair adds this note. He says, faith is not a matter of looking within ourselves to see how much we dare to request. Faith searches the scripture to see what God has promised to do in us. I don't mean in any of this to minimize the the real role of praying for the desires of our hearts, but what I want to do as we look at the context of Daniel's prayer is to encourage us that we ought to be praying God's promises. We have to be fervently begging God to fulfill his promises in the faith and confidence that he will do that. For in doing so, we behold his glory and our hearts will be comforted. That is the heart of faith. And that's the example that Daniel sets for us in his prayer in chapter 9. Well, with those words about the context of Daniel's prayer, let's turn and look at the content of his prayer. Although Daniel is praying in the confidence that God will be faithful to his promises, God's faithfulness seems to meet an immediate obstacle when Daniel thinks about his people. And that would be his people's sin. Israel 
is a nation characterized by their sin. They're dwelling in exile because of their sin. And so even as Daniel meditates on God's faithfulness, he comes face to face with Israel's sin. Sin that first led them into exile and sin that has continued in exile. And so for Daniel, when he realizes the context of of these promises that are about to be fulfilled, he cannot help but do anything but fall on his knees and confess the sins that he and his people have committed. It's not just past sins. You'll note that in verse 13, Daniel notes that Israel has continued not to entreat the Lord's favor. They have not turned from their sins, and they have not gained insight from his truth. Israel, God's people, continue to be a people characterized by sin. And it's this realization that drives Daniel to pour out a confession, a prayer of repentance, and begging for the mercy of God. He repeatedly lists the sins of Israel. And in fact, if we work through this prayer in chapter 9, we have a veritable history of the people of Israel. I mean, we can almost take our way through the, the judges and, and then through Samuel and, and the sons of Eli and, and Saul as king and then work our way through kings and chronicles and see the sins of, of God's people and then the prophets and the sins that, that the prophets accuse Israel of. And, and they're all here in Daniel's prayer. He talks about Israel and Judah abandoning God for idols, oppressing the poor, stopping honoring the Sabbath, breaking laws against marrying foreign wives. Even when they did make sacrifices in the temple, we're reminded they did it when their hearts were far from him. And all of this history of Israel and this list and litany of the sins of Israel, Daniel summarizes as he talks about rebelling against God, disobeying his commandments, acting wickedly, turning aside from his commandments and rules. The sins of the people of Israel are great. And Daniel spends 19 verses, 16 verses pouring out the confession of the sins of these people. And so God sent Israel and Judah into exile. But as Daniel puts it, the result is only shame for God's people. Of all that God's people were, as God called them into this promised land of a a land flowing with milk and honey, all that is left now is open shame. As we think through this confession that Daniel makes here and and this this list of sins, I want to look briefly at at three important truths that come out of, of this confession of sin. First, note that Daniel includes himself in this confession of sin. Daniel Daniel was not around when kings were defying the prophets. Daniel wasn't the one who was out marrying foreign wives or bowing down to idols. That wasn't Daniel. In fact, three chapters ago, we're told that Daniel was so flawless that not a single satrap in all of Babylon could find a single fault with him, except his faithfulness to his God. So, why why is Daniel then turning, and, and, and instead of saying, you know, God, Israel, those people have sinned. He says, God, we, we have sinned. Daniel, despite the outward working of the Lord in his life, where where the satraps of Babylon were unable to find a flaw in him, Daniel includes himself in this confession and says, O Lord, we, I and my people, we have sinned against you. We have not entreated your favor. We have not gained insight from your word. We have transgressed your commandments. Is this some sort of false humility on Daniel's part where he's just going to you know, throw himself under the bus as well? Is this some sort of 
general sense of, well, I'm a part of Israel, I'll just kind of include myself in the sins of Israel, and is that what's going on here? No, not at all. What Daniel is doing, while well, well, he certainly does view himself as a representative of the people of Israel, the heart of Daniel's confession is his understanding that the same sin that drove the people of Israel to bow down to idols and, and break the Lord's commandments and, and in turn from the Lord, the same sin that drove that rebellion is at play in his own heart as well. When Daniel compares himself to a perfect, holy, righteous God, he knows that, that he too must include himself in the confession of sin. For he too has sin at work in his heart. So he doesn't just say, oh look, those people, they sinned, so you had to send them into exile, so will you forgive their sins? He says, oh no, we, we have sinned. Oh Lord, forgive our sins because of your great mercy. I'm sure that few of us would deny that we're sinners but it's amazing how easily it is for us to act practically as if we haven't really done much wrong compared to so many others. We, we grumble and complain about the inconsistencies, mistakes, or unfaithfulness of others. We uh, get frustrated or angry about other people's weaknesses. We love to, to talk about the failings of, of the people around, and we can be so blinded by our own fault-finding that our own sin goes unchecked and, and unconfessed. Daniel confronts this attitude here by clearly confessing his part in Israel's unholy attempt to live before a holy God. So we first note that Daniel includes himself in the sin of his people as he confesses his sin to God. But second, note the pattern of this prayer. Note, note I just want big picture here. Note the pattern of how Daniel proceeds through this prayer. You'll note that Daniel begins the prayer of confession in verse 4 by declaring the glory of God. He says, O Lord, great and awesome, who keeps covenant love with his people. Daniel begins with a declaration of who God is and the character and faithfulness of God. And in light of that character and faithfulness of God, he begins then to list the sins that Israel has committed. But he hasn't gone very many verses in listing the sins of of Israel when back in verse 7, he's again declaring the character of God. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. And he returns to his sin, but back in the end in verse 9, he's declaring to our Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness. And then again in verse 12, he confirmed his words by bringing out this calamity. And again in verse 14 and 15, God is righteous in all his works that he has done. He is the one who saved us from the land of Egypt. He is the one who brought us out with a mighty hand. He is the one who has made a great name for himself. If you look at the pattern of this prayer, you'll see that Daniel is going back and forth from Here is who God is. Here is who we are. Here is the greatness, glory, and character of God. Here is the sin that dwells in the hearts of his people. In other words, if you look at this, you can almost say that that as Daniel focuses on the glory of God, and, and then as he focuses on the sin that's in his heart, these two focuses are fueling each other. The more he sees his own sin, the more he's driven to declare the character of God. And the more he declares the glory of God, the more he sees his own sinfulness. And and the prayer goes back and forth as as these two fuel each other. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded after the birth of our daughter last month, we were given a, a rather mesmerizing new gadget that promised to solve all of the problems of parents with newborn babies. It's an audio-visual machine triggered by crying. 
And so you put this machine in the bedroom and, and when the baby wakes up and cries, this machine kicks into gear and it pops on a, a soothing Mozart concerto and, and then uh, displays pictures of sheep and other docile animals on, on the ceiling. And the promise of this machine is when the baby wakes up, this machine takes care of the problem, puts the baby back to sleep with its calming visions and in, in music and the parents can continue to sleep without interruption. It hasn't had any effect on either our baby or our sleep yet, but it has captured the attention of our older children. And uh, they love to shine the, the pictures of the sheep and docile animals on the wall or on the ceiling. The problem is, of course, we're doing it during the day, and it doesn't shine up very well on the wall or the ceiling during the day. And, and so it takes going into the bathroom where we shut the door and we're in the darkness and shine it on the wall or the ceiling for us to really see the images well. And when, when we're in the bathroom there, suddenly the darkness all around makes the light shine bright and clear on the wall. And this usually comes to an end when, uh, as, as the light is shining there, we become all more aware of the darkness that's around us, and that gets a little scary, and we have to open the door and, and go out again. But as I, as I think about this example, that, that's exactly what's happening here, because the greater the darkness that surrounds the light, the brighter the light shines, and the brighter the light shines, the more we're aware of the darkness around it. And that's exactly what's happening in this prayer. As the more Daniel is aware of the darkness of his sin, the more he is driven to declare the glory and greatness and mercy and righteousness and faithfulness of his God. And the more he sees the glory and greatness and grace and mercy and forgiveness and righteousness of God, the more he is driven to confess his own failings and his own sin. This is exactly the way our sin and God's glory relate to each other the more clearly we focus on the goodness and greatness and glory and grace of our God, the more the sins of our self-focused heart are exposed. On the flip side, it's often exactly our small thoughts of God that conceal our sin. How have we been going through our lives lately? Have, have we said, well, I seem to be in pretty good shape spiritually overall? Have we, have we had thoughts that, that we're doing pretty well? Does, does it seem, as we consider our lives, that we're not exactly sure what we ought to be confessing? We're not really aware of any areas of sin in our hearts or our lives. We're not really sure that there's anything, you know, right now, maybe at some point we'll have to confess something, but we seem to be doing pretty well, seem to be pretty faithful overall. If this is where we are, I beg us to consider whether our thoughts of God are too small. For our hearts will be more clearly revealed in all of their self-focused sin as we have a proper view of the perfect holiness and perfect greatness and glory of the God that we stand before. And it is precisely these thoughts of who God is that will drive us back with a greater vision to our own sin. And our need to confess and come before the mercy and forgiveness of our God. And when we come before the mercy and forgiveness of our God that is offered in Jesus Christ, we will only be driven back again to our own failings and unfaithfulness. And so the cycle continues in which we are humbled before a great and a glorious God. This is the cycle that drives Daniel's passionate confession of sin and declaration of God's grace and mercy. So we look at Daniel's inclusion of himself and his prayer of confession. We look at the pattern of his prayer that fuels the declaration of God's character and his own sin. Thirdly, note that Daniel clearly recognizes that confession and repentance are the necessary prelude 
for the relationship between God and his peace people to be reconciled. If you look at this prayer, the first part is focused on God's character and their sin, but in the latter part, Daniel turns from listing his sins to begging for forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation. In verse 16 and then in following, Daniel pleads with the Lord to turn away from his anger, to turn away from his wrath, to listen to his prayer, to shine his face upon the sanctuary, to incline his ear, hear, forgive, and act. You may remember that the sanctuary in Jerusalem was the the symbol, the place where God dwelt with his people and, and reminded his people that God's favor and presence were with them. And so by begging that God would again turn his face upon his sanctuary, Daniel is praying that God would again return his presence to his people, to again show his favor to his people, to restore this relationship, to be reconciled with his people. And so Daniel prays that God would turn his face towards this now desolate sanctuary as a sign of reconciliation and restoration of this relationship. But that plea for forgiveness only follows the confession and repentance of the first part of the prayer. But I think a quick look at this prayer will reveal that this this process of confession and repentance leading to reconciliation is not formulaic. It's not not this formula where you, you confess and you repent and therefore you get reconciliation. Most of you probably, if, if you're like me, can, can think about times growing up when you were required by your parents to say you were sorry to a sibling. And I don't think I'm the only one that went through the experience that there were certainly times when there is no way that you were sorry. In fact, there's no way you were as guilty as that manipulative and tattletaling sibling who got you in trouble in the first place. And so you say, okay, fine, mom, if you're going to insist on this confession, I'll go say I'm sorry. You know, I don't think I've got anything to say sorry for, but I'll say I'm sorry, and, and then I'll be restored to you know, proper working relationship with whatever I want to continue to do. That's, that's not the way confession and repentance work before our God. That's not what we're talking about in the prayer of Daniel. Confession and repentance here in this prayer are actions that flow from a heart attitude, a heart positioned by humility that is necessary for restoration of the relationship between God and his sinful people. These are words that that flow from grief that our actions have broken the perfect law of God. They're, They're words that flow from a sorrow that we have offended his name. Words that flow from a horror that we have broken this relationship. Words that express deep desire for restoration only on the basis of his mercy and his forgiveness. There is no hint of any remaining worthiness on the people of Israel. There is no hint of any general goodness. No hint of, well, once we get this over, we're in a pretty good position overall. This confession and repentance is driven by a heart of humility that is grieved by our sin and horrified by what Daniel sees at the heart that is in him and in his people. And this is the confession and repentance that is necessary. This is the heart that is necessary for confession and repentance to lead to a reconciliation and relationship. Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, puts it this way. He, he talks about godly sorrow and says that in the Corinthians he is thankful to see godly sorrow 
That is, sorrow or grief driven by who God is and who they are. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance unto life. And that's exactly what Daniel is displaying perfectly in this prayer. This heart attitude driven by grief over our sin in the midst of a confession and repentance that will lead to restoration, not because of this formula being fulfilled, not because Daniel has now done what he's supposed to do, check and we get forgiveness, but because of God's faithfulness to have mercy and to forgive those who humble themselves before God as God has required them to do. I can't help but think that there are few passages in the book of Daniel that point us more directly to the cross of Jesus Christ than this prayer of confession in chapter 9. When we hear the cry of Daniel's heart, when we see the anguish over his sin, when, when we feel the real tension between the promises of God and the sin that is in his heart and the hearts of his people, when, when we see the longing for restoration and forgiveness and the impossibility of that restoration happening by, by what's in his own heart and, and the complete reliance upon the mercy and forgiveness of God, when we see the despair of never having any righteousness enough in his own heart, when we see the realization and the grief over hearts of disobedience and rebellion, when we see all of this here in this prayer, this is exactly what drives us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it is the cross of Jesus Christ that meets this humble cry with nothing to bring on our own part that relies only on the mercy and forgiveness of God and solves this tension of sinful hearts and a, and a merciful God where God is both just against sin and yet merciful to his people. It is this prayer that brings us face to face with the cross. It is this heart that Daniel displays as he considers this contrast between the inbent, self-focused sin of himself, of his heart, and his people, compared to what we ought to have been doing, gazing on the glory of our God as we were created to do. It is that contrast, that is the heart that knows we need God to act, to forgive, and to save. And of course, the unbelievable, life-altering, heart-changing truth is that God answers exactly this prayer, that God does act, he does forgive, he does hear, and he sends Christ Jesus to fulfill perfectly Daniel's prayer and to give his people the restoration of relationship that they so desperately need. In Christ Jesus, Daniel's prayer finds its fulfillment. God is faithful to his promises, to his people, forgiving their sins, reconciling him to himself, and so bringing glory to his name. And it's in light of that that I just very briefly want to comment on the conclusion to Daniel's prayer. Note, as we've already said, that Daniel ends his prayer by begging God for mercy and forgiveness. But in addition to to noting that fact, I want to note the reason for Daniel's request. Look in both verses 17 and verse 19, and and we immediately see that, that the basis for Daniel's request, the reason for Daniel's request, is that God would act for his own name's sake. Daniel's prayer, Daniel's request is driven first and foremost by his concern for God's glory and the honor and praise of God's name. Daniel repeatedly returns to this point. He wants God to act for his name's sake, for the sake of God's name, for the sake of his reputation and honor among the nations. 
and praying for God's forgiveness and restoration, for the sake of God's glory, Daniel is revealing his desire to see God receive the praise and honor that he deserves. And he is reminding us and emphasizing that we make our requests before God not out of a selfish desire motivated by our interests, but that we might see God praised as he acts for his people. But I also want to see how Daniel is drawing attention to one of the most incredible truths that is wrapped up in the grand story of God's word. And that is that the Bible is giving us a consistent picture of this great and awesome God condescending not only to relate to mankind, but to tie his own name to the fortunes of his people. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. God's glory and honor among the nations are determined by what happens to his own people. And so when Israel's saved from Egypt, and when Israel conquers the promised land, and when Israel receives the law and the tabernacle, we see over and over again the nations fearing the name of the Lord, and God's glory is displayed amongst all the nations. And yet when Israel sins and is sent into exile, again and again, the prophets in the Old Testament pray and and they say they, they are concerned that this will reflect badly on the glory in the name of God. And over and over again, they beg God to restore his people, not just because they want to get back to their house, but again and again. It's clear in in David's words. It's clear in the words of Moses. It's clear in Ezekiel. It's clear in Daniel. It's clear elsewhere. Over and over they say, God, restore your people. Save us for your name's sake. For what will people think of your name if your people are deserted amongst the nations? God makes it clear in Ezekiel that he will act. He will gather his people from the nations. He will save them. He will cleanse them for sin, but he will be doing it for the glory of his name, not merely for the sake of his people. But as soon as we say that, we immediately realize that we can't separate the two. God's glory is achieved as he works for his people, and his people are saved in a way that bring glory to his name. The same is true for us in Christ. God has again identified his name with us, his people. And so we are called Christians, people of Christ. His name is tied to his people. As a result, his desire to work for his glory involves working for the good of his people. And working for the good of his people results in him working for his glory. In the book, Trusting God, Jerry Bridges puts it this way. He said, God never pursues his glory at the expense of the good of his people. Nor does he ever seek our good at the expense of his glory. And here's this glorious phrase that Jerry Bridges says. He says, he has designed his eternal purposes so that his glory and the good of his people are inextricably bound together in the workings of history. Now Daniel would be the first to acknowledge that God's glory is not bound up in what we want for ourselves and it's not bound up in what we think is best for ourselves, and it's, it's not bound up in, in making us most comfortable. But throughout the Old Testament narrative, and, and again in the New Testament, in the writings of Paul, we again and again see that God has tied his glory to the salvation and the good of his people. So that God's glory is achieved as he saves his people. And as his people are saved, he receives glory. I can think of few truths that can comfort us in any scenario of life, whether in trial and suffering and and good and in glory and plenty, than the truth and the faith as we believe the promises and power and faithfulness of God. Or our hearts will lean firmly on this truth 
that God has tied his name to his people. And so that as God answers Daniel's prayer to act for his own name, he is answering by restoring his people and saving his people. And as God saves his people, his name will receive glory. As we come to the end of Daniel's prayer, we have a vision of of this man on his knees in sackcloth and ashes, having laid before God the sinfulness of his heart and his people with no righteousness, no mercy-inspiring qualities to grab the attention of God, yet confident that God will act because of God's faithfulness to his promise. And I pray that we will find ourselves in the same posture tonight, broken by our sins, but rejoicing in the ultimate act of God to hear and to act and to forgive the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus that leaves us cleansed, restored, and reconciled in the sanctuary of our God. Let's pray. Father, you were faithful to your words. You were faithful to your words to Jeremiah in restoring your people. You were faithful to your words throughout your Old Testament to, to, to send a Savior whereby your people would be saved. You were faithful to answer Daniel's prayer to cleanse your people, to restore your people, to, to reconcile the relationship. And you have been faithful to your promises in our lives for no sake of our own, but for the glory and honor of your name as you act in your Savior. I pray that this heart will fuel our confession of sin and fuel our giving of glory to our God. And we pray this for your name's sake. Amen.